Open up to James 3. And I will pray. We'll get started. Jesus, just, um, just ask, as always, that you would be glorified, that, uh, that your word would, would spring forth, Holy Spirit, that, that the scriptures that you've authored and the Bible tells us that you interpret um, would, would jump off pages or they would become so much deeper than black text on white pages that they would become transformative transformative lessons from the God who holds the span of the entire universe in his hand. Would this not just be a study? Would this be worship? Would this be an equipping of the saints for life as worship outside of this room? May this just simply catapult us into a week of worship and church outside of these walls. Um, But there's work to be done here tonight within these walls, and so I pray for grace, I pray for mercy, I pray against condemnation, which is of Satan, but I pray for conviction, which is of the Holy Spirit. So would you convict us, and at the same time, would you build us back up as you see us for your glory, not for mine, not for the churches, but solely and only for your glory. And so, Jesus behind, lifted up, Holy Spirit, uh, I give this sermon to you. Would you take over and have your way with your children, myself included, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys remember this? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. That's a lie, isn't it? How many remember this? I'm rubber, you're glue. Anything you say bounces off of me and what? Sticks onto you. That's not true, is it? That's a lie, right? How many of you guys have seen the movie The Christmas Story? How many of you ever heard of this old school tactic, it's probably illegal now in California, of making a kid put soap in his mouth when he said a bad word, right? Be honest, how many of you had that happen to you? Don't worry, you're not on the, you're not on the film, so if it's illegal in California, there's no proof of it that you raised your hand, they won't go after your parents or anything like that. Remember that? Like parents would wash out, and wash out a kid's mouth, put soap on the tongue, remember that? You go in there, you like hope it was like the, the, the nice like gel hand soap, not the bar, right? Because that was the worst. You could handle the gel stuff. You're like, oh, it's a little sweeter, right? But not the, don't do the, the bar. But that washing out when you would say what? Bad word like in the movie? Words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. That's a lie. Words are incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful, as we're going to see tonight. We've been in this study called the Law of Liberty, and James is, if nothing, he's amazing at putting you in tension, isn't he? I mean, he talks about the Law of Liberty. He talked about that in chapter one. You're like, Law and Liberty? Those are like the opposite, but they're not. He talked about finding joy in trials. That's not what the world says. No one says, you're going through an awful time. You're being matured in your faith. This is actually a good thing, though it may be bad things that are happening to you in the trial very well could be the case. God says, I'm inviting you into more maturity because you'll rely on me. You'll become more patient in those trials. And so he talks about joy and tribulation. You're like, those two don't go together, but they do. And then last week we took took a look at faith and works, right? And we've, we've sort of gone like, hyper one way or the other in our personal faith. We either believe that works has absolutely nothing to do with it or that we are dependent on works for salvation. 
And he puts us in tension. He says, look, you see that people are saved by their works. He doesn't say that you're saved by your works. He says, you can see the people that are justified, how? By their works. It's a faith that produces works that can save you. And so faith and works and joy and tribulation and law and liberty, and he puts you in this constant tension. And James knew life in tension. He was the half-brother of Jesus who was his brother, his bunk, maybe they had bunk beds. Jesus was a carpenter. Wouldn't surprise me if he made them bunk beds. And then at some point in their relationship as half-brothers, Jesus began claiming that he was God. And James is like, I don't buy it. Do you know that about James? James lived with Jesus. He watched him preach and teach. And all the evidences that we have, all the evidence, church history, extra biblical, everything says James didn't believe him. And we see in one of the, in the gospel accounts that his half brothers and sisters, because he had brothers and sisters, Jesus had siblings. He knows about that chaos, by the way. He can relate with you with your chaotic family life. It says that they came to seize him because they said, quote, he's out of his mind. Jesus, like your brother claims to be God. Some of you had a brother that did that. Like, look, I'm God. That's why I get top bunk, right? I did that with my little brother, told him he was adopted, right? <laughs> we'll take you back. <laughs> but your brother claims to be God? You can't really like, you're kind of like, James, come on, believe, but come on, your brother claims you're God? You gotta, I mean, James is like, really? I don't believe it. But then what happened, as I said every week, what happened that changed James' mind? His brother died, was in the grave for three days, came back from the dead, and had a sandwich with him. That's a pretty convincing argument, right? Not the fish sandwich part, the whole dying and coming back to life. That's how you convince your half-brother that you're God. That's all you have to do is die and come back to life. Then I'll believe you as your pastor. So James had this radical conversion after years and years, quite possibly decades of saying, (laughs) dude's crazy. That's a testament. And then James becomes a bold defender of the faith to his death. A mob came to him. He was one of the lead elders at the church in Jerusalem before the dispersion, which we saw at the beginning of this, is that it's being written to all the churches that fled the persecution. And they came to James. They said, hey, You've been saying that your half-brother was God. I said, yep, I didn't believe it. Then I saw it. And I saw him, I get the whole thing, on board with it, on fire for it, preaching and teaching. I said, you know what, take it back. I said, no. James, take it back. He's not God, James says. He is. And so the mob grabbed him, they took him up to the top of the Temple Mount, and they threw him off. And he hit the ground. Church history records he didn't die. Church history records he prayed for the mob as one of them picked up a stick and bashed in his skull. James, to his dying breath, professed that Jesus was and is God. And what happens is that this great, immense persecution came upon the church in Jerusalem. And so Christians, maybe conservatively 20,000 at the time, based on a couple different accounts, scattered. And this letter is being written, obviously not after James was bashed in, but before that. He's writing this letter to this dispersion after this persecution hit the church. And he's instructing them in the ways of righteousness. And he's writing specifically to congregations, churches, 
converted Jews, Christians. And he takes on some tough and really super, I pray, hyper-practical things. And I think tonight is one of the most practical passages of this entire letter. And he's going to take on the tongue. And I have to, I have to confess, and my wife is listening to this in the other room, and so you can confirm with her later. This is probably the area that I have failed in the most in my faith. Hands down, my use of words to tear people to shreds has something that has marked my life, even my faith. Specifically, high school and college. I studied communications, and I spent about eight years, particularly high school and college, using words to destroy people in debate, in ideological discussions, in faith talks, demeaning, brutalizing, humiliating, downright terrorizing people at times with my words. Sticks and stones may break my bones is nonsense. Words are powerful things. And I have failed and continue to fail, but I believe, as my wife would attest to you, God, and she has seen in our time together, she has seen God do a radical work on this. It used to be where, where, where and someone brought up some sort of topic, and at the time, a lot of it was political, because I was hyper-political. If someone brought something up, she knew the whole thing was going south fast, and I would not lose. And I used words against people. And I still can use words and choose my words very pointedly to get at people and to stab them with that when I want to show my dominance. Maybe I'm the only one in the room here that has used words to hurt people. Maybe I'm the only person here that struggles with the area of our life. The only area in all of creation, the Bible says, we can't tame. And that's our tongue. And James is going to go into this now. And it doesn't get any more practical than the thing that you're holding in your mouth right now. It doesn't come any closer than a discussion on our use of words and our lashing of the tongue. But I pray that we're not just broken down in this section, that we're built back up in the identity of Christ. And so I want to take hopefully a a broader look at this concept of, of words And I love doing this. I I love contextualizing topics in the context of the Bible and going all the way back to the beginning. In fact, John 1.1, I'll turn there. It's a Bible study, it's not illegal. It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you'll notice in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning God created. Now, how did he create everything? 
all of creation, could God have not said, could he? Could he have not done, could he have not done I Dream of Genie and just, and everything happens. Four people got that reference, right? Because you're either studying TV in school or you were there for it, right? Just blink. And could not, could God have not created everything with a blink? How did he choose to create? In the beginning, God created. And then verse after verse after verse after verse, it says what? He said, he spoke, and things were created. And we know from Colossians 1.16 that when he spoke, Jesus was the one that created everything. That's why we call him the word of God. It says all things were created by him, through him, and for him. So when God said, Jesus went out and put it all together. He was a carpenter from before the foundations of the earth. He was building things. Jesus was the one that actually put it together. It wasn't the Holy Spirit, wasn't God the Father, functionally submissive with separate roles in the Trinity. The Bible says that he went to work and fashioned everything. God said it and it became. Genesis 1 is really just a sermon. Life came from Genesis 1. Everything came from Genesis 1 and God put it all into motion through word. Through the word. He is, Jesus is the word. That is our example. Not the pastor, not the sermon, not James, not a disciple. No one is the standard for word except Jesus. There's good influence, there's discipleship, there's church leadership, I get that. There's authority, there's all that good stuff. But ultimately, our understanding of words rests in the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That has to be where you hinge or the world will fail you. Pastors will fail you. The church will fail you. God himself began this concept of word, spoken word. And in the, all throughout the Old Testament, you see what? God's voice active in his people, do you not? Some of us wish we still kind of had that aspect. Some of us wish we would hear God more clearly that he would just strike up a thunderstorm. Personally, I'm, I don't want to live in the Old Testament at all, Right? But, but in the Old Testament, did you not see God just screaming down from heaven at times? Did we not see bold prophets that brought new word from God, right? So you saw God's voice active in the Old Testament. You saw prophets active. You saw angels active bringing what? Spoken word, because words are powerful. And then Jesus came, we know, as we read, as the word of God. The spoken manifestation of God himself, the incarnation of God himself, and we call him the word. And so God is a God that constantly communicates. And in Genesis 1, we see that when people are created, when Jesus fashioned us together, what's known as the Imago Dei, he put us together in the image and the likeness of God. The Trinity said, let us make them like us in the image and likeness of God. And so our call as Christians, as God reflects down on his people, though we're broken and fractured like a broken mirror, we still reflect light, though it disperses because we're not perfect. But in the Imago Dei, the image of God, we see that we reflect God to a broken world. And so a God that constantly communicates, even in the Trinity, before anyone was created, before the world even existed, perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect worship, perfect communication between the Trinity. Constantly outpouring itself. So when they poured into us, when the Trinity created us, when Jesus put you together as a reflector of him, a God that constantly communicates, we are now a people that constantly communicates. 
It's always been that way. Always been that way. There's a study that puts on average, and I'm not average, I know this, I talk. I'm a marketer. If I'm not talking in a meeting out of my mouth, I'm talking online in email campaigns and social media and hashtags and all that craziness. Constant, and yes, this does apply to your Facebook. It's not just spoken word. This is about communication. There was a study that says that we spend on average, so I'm way above it. Some of you are less, I get it. On average, we spend 20% of our lives talking. Even people that are mute, we've come up with what? Sign language. It's not like, well, they can't communicate anymore. Sign language, brilliant. The, the, the mind says, look, let's come up with a system of symbols using our hands so that people can communicate. We are constantly communicating. We're constantly reflecting a God who constantly communicates with his people. And so we're constantly communicating. The study went on to say that in one day, if you were to write down everything we said, on average, your transcript from the day would be a 50-page book. So you're like, I haven't read a 50-page book in years. You didn't know that you write one every single day. It says, I got the number two. By the end of the year, we'd have written 132 books, each one of which is 200 pages long. Constantly communicating. We can't help ourselves, right? We can't help ourselves. And, and as we launch into this, this chapter, I, I'm mindful of, of the law of liberty and the title. And I've said it, I think I said it the first week. I don't know if I said it last week, but there's two views of the law. And so when James comes down and breaks some of this stuff down, and it's, it's, they're tough passages. I want you to remember there's two general views of God's law and his commands. One is that he's keeping you from something fun. Let's just, let's break it down simple. God sets up a law because he's keeping me from something fun. The other view is that God is inviting me into something better. You get that? So one is this restrictive mentality. One is this invitative mentality. One restricts me. One is a restriction. And one is an invitation into something better, more delightful, more joyful, more peaceful. And we all know this as parents. This is the irony, is we struggle with it with God, and yet we know that when we place protective measures around our kids, it's so they can flourish, not so that they can die. I don't let my kids play in traffic. Dad's just keeping us from fun. It's a game of Frogger right outside the door. No, Daddy's protecting you from getting squashed by the idiots that drive up and down Hillcrest. Because we live off Hillcrest, and if you're one of the people that drives up and down Hillcrest like an idiot, stop, please. But, but the protective measures are so that our kids can flourish and have life better and more abundant, not so that they just won't get to experience anything fun like playing in traffic. So those are the views of God's law. So as parents, we can get this innately, and yet a lot of times, like, oh, but God's got all these laws. I'm saved by grace. It doesn't really matter. We try to wiggle around that, even though we do it practically every day in our family. I pray by the grace of God. Those are good protective measures. So do you come to this thinking, well, here's another bunch of rules, a bunch of things I got to listen and do in order for God to love me. I hope we crushed that last week. God cannot love you any more, any less than he already does. He doesn't look forward to a future version of you. He wants you today. That's it. He has a process of sanctification, but that in no way increases his love for you. Like Justin said, he doesn't have any more to give. You have God's love a hundred percent. You can't get 
any more out of him. But there's sanctification. As God sets up his people to reflect him, there's instruction, there's development, there's sanctification, there's a process. And tonight he needs to perhaps wash out our mouths with soap. Quite honestly. And so God has a design in place for our words. Did you know that? He has protective measures so that others are protected and that we are protected with how we use our language. And James actually set it up in chapter one. He said, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Which is the exact, people say man wrote the Bible. That's the exact opposite of what every man has ever said ever, ever. Do you know anyone preaching that? Do you know any worldly influence saying, look, we ought to just listen a lot more and just, I'm going to hold back on on my opinions? No. This is the exact opposite of what we're taught. We're taught be swift to speak, right? In fact, while other people are speaking, just sort of nod your head, but formulate what you're going to say, right? Don't actually listen. Just get ready to go because at some point they'll be done and then it's game on, right? Isn't that how we tend to approach? I do. Someone's like coming and talking to me. I'm like, all right, now how do I respond? So let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. And so we pick up in James 3. By the grace of God, we're going to go through the whole chapter. It says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Zach and I love doing this. It's like, hey, who wants to be judged more strictly? That's how we should recruit pastors. Everyone's like, man, I'd love to give a sermon. You want God to judge you more strictly? No, not really. I thought he treated everyone equally. People don't treat you equally as a pastor? Zach, in the Good Shepherd series, would challenge you that as we're called to be shepherds, we're judged more strictly by God himself because we've been given stewardship over the souls of people. And so, but, but why, does he even, why is this this quick little quip? Because he knows that, that as, as teachers, we now have a platform for our words. We now have perhaps a greater influence, also a greater opportunity to poison those that were called to shepherd. And so he says, look, let not many, as he's writing to these churches, this dispersed church out of all the ancient Roman world, he says, look, not many of you should be teaching. Because he knows it's an opportunity for words to be used inappropriately. I've got teachers run the risk of poisoning those they intend to help with their words. And so be careful who you listen to. Be careful. Be careful of those, I've got a few notes, who only point out what's wrong, never point out what's right. You know those people. Have a critique for everything, but no solutions. They have all the Bible verses that tell you you're wrong, but they have no Bible verse to tell you that how you're built back up. Be careful of those who preach condemnation instead of allow for conviction. Condemnation is of God. The Bible says that those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. There is conviction, however, and conviction is a good thing. Condemnation is a bad thing. So beware of those who preach condemnation instead of conviction. Beware of those who preach themselves instead of Jesus. If I ever use myself as the example of of a biblical truth, run for your life. You have my permission. You have my Bible is not about me. I didn't even, my name's in there, but it, it wasn't even me. Bible's not about me. It's not about the disciples. 
It's not about Israel, ultimately. It's not about the church, ultimately. It's about Jesus. It has ramifications for all those things, but it's about Jesus. Beware, be careful, especially as college students come back and, and, and very likely you'll go back home after school or you'll be at a different church at some point in your life. Beware of people who preach themselves as the example. When the conclusion comes, it's about what the person has done, not the person of Jesus and who he and what he has done. So be careful. I love verse two. It says, for we all stumble in many things. It's a truth that, that allows me as a pastor to say, I don't have to be perfect, though I am a teacher. I will be strict, more strictly judged, but we don't have to be perfect. Because if, if you haven't noticed, we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to be able to pull it off. And so he says, so we all stumble in many, thi- many things too. It's not even like, hey, we all stumble. It's like in many things. You're terrible on multiple levels. That's what God just said. I love that too. He's just sort of like, hey, Mark, you're pretty awful on actually a whole bunch of things. I'm like, encouraging. Thank you. It's not an excuse for it. It's just the reality of it. Even as a teacher, it says, if anyone does not stumble in words, he's going to transition. If anyone does not stumble in word, look, if you have full grasp on your tongue, guess what the Bible says? You're perfect. Congrats. And I'd love to challenge you on that this week, if you think you are, by the way. In fact, I'll just hang out with you tomorrow and we'll see. We'll hang out for just a couple hours. It says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And then what he's going to do is he's going to launch into three illustrations. And I want to show you what he does. First and foremost, he says that words are powerful. That words can be influential. And that words can be destructive. Words are powerful. Words have meaning. They can be influential. And they can be destructive. And they don't have power just because it's, it's vocalizations, it's, it's reverberations and vibrations that come from your lungs and your vocal cords. That's not why. He's going to get into ultimately where they come from and why they do have power. But first he must say that they are powerful. Let's acknowledge that. It's not sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never help me. Well, I said it, but it doesn't really matter. We're all big boys now. We're all at the job. We're all in school. We're in college now. Let's get over this little stuff forever. How many of you remember something that was said to you when you were a child and it still affects you? Still affects you. These send reverberations. They throw a rock into a pond and the ripples go out for the rest of your life at times. The things that we say. And so he sets up first that they are powerful. We need to acknowledge that. That they can be influential for good things. We need to acknowledge that. And they can be destructive. We need to acknowledge that. So he uses three illustrations. He says, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Anyone ridden a horse? Who's ridden a horse? How many of you felt entirely, first time, like some of you are maybe seasoned, right? I ride a steel horse, okay, motorcycle. But even when you, and I've ridden some horses, that was an off, don't ever, that was so bad. Some people are like, is that a Bon Jovi reference? I don't know. And the other half's like, I don't know who Bon Jovi is. <laughs> Grew up in the 80s, my bad, okay? You, remember the first time you got on the horse? Even if you're comfortable now, in fact, people that are comfortable with them still haven't appreciated. You get on that horse, what are you sitting on? This is, this is a powerful beast. You're like, oh, he's tamed, he's fine. You're like, you've seen that backside? 
That horse will buck me. Like, doesn't it? Not even. I was in Costa Rica one time. And, and scuba diving with my sister and some friends. And we have a friend that was big gal. Former softball, like, muscly gal. And we're, we're going on a horseback ride through the jungle at the base of a volcano on the border of Nicaragua. It's awesome. We're trotting, think we're awesome, right? The horse is just like... <sighs> I looked back mid-roll into the ditch. She got just... And this is a strong girl. I've seen guys do the same. Just... <laughs> horse is like, nah. Touch me again, right? We're just... We're off. We're gone. Beasts. He says, words are powerful. But notice that that bit steers everything. That, that, that little bit of discipline steers power. So he says, look, first of all, we need to understand, this is, this is you are sitting on, on, a, on a magnificent being in your ability to communicate. They are powerful. That's his first illustration. The second one is this. Look also at ships. All they, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Do you know that? Just massive battleships, engines, war machines, and there's a rudder going, eh, go left. Eh, go right. He says, look, words are influential. They're like that rudder. They steer they move people, ideas. Words are incredibly powerful and they can be incredibly influential. But as we see in verse five, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. They can be entirely destructive. We think it's just a little thing. It's just a little joke. It's just a little quip. It's just a little comeback. It's just a little cigarette butt. And if we know anything in California, it's churning and burning. Right? We know how one little spark. I mean, if you're up there in the summer, I mean, if you fart, this, this place torches. <laughs> right? This state knows how to burn with the slightest spark. It says, your words are like that spark that can destroy an entire forest. Words are very powerful. Don't diminish the power of words. But don't fool yourself into thinking that they're intrinsically good. They can be used to influence, for better or for worse, and they can be entirely destructive as well. Words are powerful. If you want, I've only got two. But if you read Proverbs... I can't tell you how many verses talk about the tongue. I can't tell you how many words talk about our ability to communicate and what that can do. I pulled out two, perhaps two of the most devastating, I think. The first one is Proverbs 18, 21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So I'm like, that's not a big deal. Bible would say it is. Look, everyone in the locker room talks like this. The Bible would say you could spark a wildfire. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. This is what I want you to think about this week. I hope to remember to remind you at the end too. 
with everything you say, with everything you tweet, with everything you post on Instagram, with every caption, with every hashtag, with every Facebook status, with every communication with your friends, with your family, with acquaintances, people you don't know, professors, bosses, you have two things that can happen when words leave your mouth. You can build or you can burn. You can produce death or life with your words. When God began spoken word in Genesis 1, everything was created. Everything came to life. When Jesus spoke, he called Lazarus out of the grave. He said his name because if he just said, come forth, every dead person would have probably got out of the grave. He had to be specific. When Jesus spoke, though there's hard truths, and I've done entire sections on Jesus' harsh words for Pharisees and scribes and all those folks. Don't get me wrong. But when Jesus spoke, it's with the direction of building with bringing life and life more abundant. With everything you say, you have an opportunity to build up or burn down. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, there is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Another way of saying build or burn is that you can wound or you can heal with your words. Wound like a sword. Being pierced into the flesh, your words can do the same and ripple through the rest of that person's life. I still remember what people said about my birthmark when I was in elementary school. I still remember being called Scarface. I still remember all that. The funniest thing was is that like, Three nights ago, I asked Ethan because he saw Maisie has this little birthmark, kind of like mine on the back of her head. And he goes, oh, look at her birthmark. Talk about it. I said, do you know where, have you seen daddy's birthmark? And he kind of looks at me and he's like, starts looking down my arms. It was like a point of restoration for me because he doesn't even see it. Like my little boy has no, he doesn't know a dad. With, he doesn't even register. This. I pointed to him I'm like, this is it. And he's like, oh, <laughs> like he didn't even get it, right? I still remember playgrounds. I still remember the frustration that that built. That's why I just, went, I just went terrorized athletics. I just wanted to be better than everyone. Why? Because I had a stigma, right? A massive birthmark on my face. It follows me around. I get stared at in malls, right? I used to come up with just dumb things. I was playing on a softball team one time. I like hit a double, came in, second base. I'm like, bro, what happened to your face? I was like, this is proof that Saddam had chemical weapons. He's like, I'm just kidding, dude. I was born with it. No worries. <laughs> When I was younger, people were like, what happened, little guy? I was like, our house was burning, and I got out safe, but my little brother was still in his crib, and I went back up, and a two-by-four came. I was developed in my responses. People were like, you saved your kids. And I was born with this, homie. It's good. We're fine. We're just at the mall, (laughs) right? But I still remember words, right? Just little teasing on the element. We've all done that. We still do that in the workplace, snickering and talking. We still do that at school. She just, I bless she. He, do, he, it's such, he doesn't, it, if you really, you know, we still do that. We can wound or we can heal with our words. And I go to Luke 6. He's given us these three, three illustrations. Words can be powerful, they can be influential, and they can be destructive. Luke 6, 45, it gives us clarity on why words are powerful. Where do they come from? The Bible has an answer for where does my speech come from? If God is nothing, right, he's practical. 
He's practical. Words are powerful for a reason. Words have a birthplace. It's not your tongue. It's not your vocal cords. Luke 6 says your words are born deeper than that. Everything that comes out of your mouth was born, birthed deeper, conceived deeper within you. It says this. A good man, in Luke 6.45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. You need to know that what you say is not a speech issue, it's a heart issue. As a pastor, as a Christian, you should know this as well when you're, when you're interacting with people. What they say was not stirred up here. It came from here. It is evidence of a heart issue. And if you knew nothing about Jesus' ministry, it's that he constantly and consistently always got to the heart of issues, literally and figuratively. He always went to the heart of the issues. He didn't stay on the surface Pharisees came up and said, hey, how do we divorce our wives, right? You remember that? Hey, how can we divorce? And he's like, let me teach you about marriage. Why did he do that? Why did he go back and say, you know, look, God created a male and female. It didn't answer, he wasn't talking about divorce. Why did Jesus do that? He said, look, the reason you're asking about how do I divorce my wife is because you, you don't even understand what marriage means. You see this time and time again. Hey, are we supposed to, are we supposed to give our taxes? So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is it? He said, look, it's deeper than that. It's not just about your paycheck. It's about where is your heart? Jesus constantly, you take a look at his teachings, his responses. He always went above, or he could say he always went deeper than the question called for. It's one of the things I loved about it. It's one of the things that radically transformed me when I taught through the gospel for the first time years ago, was that Jesus went beyond. People on the surface, you should be like, he didn't answer the question. We asked about divorce. Why is he talking about marriage? Because you don't get that. Because why? Because this came from your heart. You're struggling down there. You're just saying one thing, but it's evidence of something deeper. Look, we are doing the same thing. When we lash out with our words, simply evidence of heart issues, not speech or mind issues or comprehension or logic. These are heart issues and Jesus wants to go deeper than that. He says, these are where your words come from and they have an opportunity to burn or build up. They have an opportunity to wound or to heal, to be influential for good or to be a a destructive force in the world. So words are hard issues. And I've got aggressive and passive aggressive because we we all sort of get the aggressive stuff and that's where I am. My wife will tell you that that my mentality is aggressive. She's passive aggressive. She'll openly confess that. I'm aggressive. I'm going to tell you up front why I think you're an idiot. I'm going to use words very clearly. There's no, no one leaves like, I wonder how he thought about that. I don't know what he really felt. We should circle back with him. Especially in my earlier years, as God continues to work on this. Look, I just, I would tell you how much I hated something. I would tell you how dumb and how, how irregular your, 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 your theories are, how inconsistent your politics are, how off your theology is. I would just tell you. I'd just come out aggressive with it. Just no bare bones. I'm not a coward in that sense if you will. This is what I want to tussle with you. I'm not a coward. I'm a jerk, but I'm not a coward with my words. S- some, some of you are cowards. 
You won't do that. Not that you should. You're not like, okay, well, I'm passive aggressive. I'll go aggressive then this week. Let's try aggressive this week. Don't take that. I'm aggressive for the wrong reason. Some people are passive aggressive. You're, you're too cowardly to come out and say some of that stuff. So you'd rather just find ways to use words to steal people's joy instead. Right? Like, I got, <laughs> I got into Cal Poly. Like, yeah, I heard they've kind of lowered their standards. It's all right. Yeah, it's a great school. You'll be close. You, you, should, you know. Right? You sort of, something happens. I got a job. Well, yeah, you know. It's like, well. And, and you, you kind of find, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Passive aggressive. You find ways to swipe joy without coming out and saying it. Hey, you don't like so I'll just tell you I don't like you. So that whether you're aggressive or passive aggressive, these are destructive forces in the world. They, they seek to steal joy. They seek to burn down rather than build back up. I've got word problems or heart problems and heart problems are identity problems. See, at the core of all heart issues is an identity problem. Let me explain. If your identity, and this is where the gospel gets to swoop in, if your identity is primarily in the gospel, you need not tear down with your words because nothing on earth can threaten your identity. Let me explain. I'm in the business world. I, I, I'm not on staff. I've said it a lot, but I, I only do that to, so that you know that when I preach about workplace and living your faith out in a secular work environment, I'm there every morning morning. I'm there with my spreadsheets and my outlook. I'm there. I go back to the office tomorrow. Okay? If my identity is primarily in my business savvy, I'm an online marketer. Just hired a gal, younger than me, probably going to be smarter than me in a couple of years at this stuff. If my primary identity is in business, my side businesses, my full-time job, my online marketing abilities, if someone comes in and threatens that, knows more, is more savvy, has more success, builds a web business faster, more robust than me, I must use words to attack. I must tear down because my identity is being threatened. That which I base my, my value on is being threatened. So I begin to slice it. Well, you know, we'll see. I think they're kind of doing some shady stuff to get more online sales. I don't think you'll see next year. If they're going to hit 40% increase this year, it's going to be negative next year. You're not going to be able to keep that. And we start, to tear, we start to tear back down. And so if my identity is first and foremost in that, if my identity is first and foremost in my role as a husband, Right? And someone comes, just an epic husband, way better. They take her on dates every week, takes his wife on dates every week, just loves his kids, like just a love bomb, way more gracious, not nearly as much of a, if my identity is in my husbandry and someone comes and I'm like, that guy's a better husband, what do I have to do? I have to start tearing him down. Well, he's not, he's not a pastor, he's not serving, he's just sort of, what does he do for a living? Does he drive a motorcycle? I just, come on, it's just, and we start to tear people, everything comes down to the motorcycle, right? And so you start, you start, you start tearing people down. Something like I don't identify with any of that. Look, if you have to be the funny one in your group, when someone comes in and they're getting more laughs, what do you got to do? You got you to knock them down a couple, don't you? Why? Because your identity is primarily, I'm the funny guy, right? Look, I've got Ethan and Asher. Ethan is a nerd, okay? Came home from his first day of kindergarten. We're like, what was your favorite thing? He's like, the rules. <laughs> Look at Carissa. I'm like, that one is yours, apparently. 
Asher could care. Asher is the funny guy, right? He's, he is the funny kid, right? We're, we're learning this. They have two different love languages. Now that we have Maisie, we're three weeks into this. Chris and I just sit and laugh, right? Like Ethan, like she starts to cry. Ethan comes up and like, well, let me hold her. He'll start singing to her. He's got this little, this fake little iPad thing that the, the pen is also like a microphone. We caught him. He had no clue we were even watching him. We caught him recording the song for Maisie. Like singing into it, Maisie, his voice is as is, is awesome as mine, right? It's just like, Maisie, I'll never leave you because I love you. Like, da, da, da. Like, you know, dad's not going to take you back. Like, he keeps joking, you know, like. <laughs> he wants to love on her. And Chris, he, he's like, he thinks that the response to her, her crying is that he needs to pour out love. Like, Asher just starts punching himself in front of her. He's like, Maisie, oh, and he falls down. And then he runs and gives, gets something. Like, here's a toy, right? And he, they have totally different love languages. But he, Asher comes in, like, he doesn't want to soothe her. He wants to make her laugh. He's like, oh, he starts punching and falling down. It's like there's a sniper. He just keeps getting hit right in front of her. Because he's got to be the funny guy, right? Some of you have, have got this whole identity, but you're the funny one in the pack. And then someone comes in and they're funnier, like me, right? And like, you're like, well, I'm not, and you got to knock them down. Some of you don't identify with that. Some of you have to be the pretty one in your group. And so when another girl walks, you just, well, she, I see this with the older ladies too. Well, she's never had kids. She doesn't know, right? Of course she can look like that. No kids. Wait till you have kids. You see that? You see that? Younger girls, you didn't know that. That's what they're saying when they're whispering, actually. That's what, that's what the more seasoned gals are saying when they look at you, Right? You got to be the pretty one. You're so, well, she, you know, what is she, she Botox? She does the, the forehead thing, whatever that, I don't even know what that is. Is this Botox? Is the forehead thing Botox? What is that? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, of course she has a forehead like that. She gets injections. She lives in Westlake. They all do that, right? And she just, <laughs> you got to be the pretty one, so you got to knock them down a couple, right? So you don't get with that. So you got to be the smart one in your group. You got to be the smart one in your group. You got to get straight A's, right? And someone comes in and gets a 4.0. Well, they didn't have calculus. Of course, they got 4.0, of course. It didn't take organic chemistry, right? It's, like, it's nonsense. We'll see next semester when he starts the real classes, sophomores. <laughs> Gen ed, it's easy. Because you're a smart one. You built this whole identity. If someone threatens that, you got to what? You got to cut them down. Whether in front of them, aggressively, or behind their back, passive aggressively. Some of you don't get that because you're not bright like me. You have to be the athletic one. You have to be the athletic one. You got to be the star. Right? Because your whole life you were told you were the star. Monster, you're the best on the field. But then someone came and was actually the best on the field. Right? He probably juices. Snow horses. No one's that fast. Right? Just got to knock him down. Why? It's an identity issue. Springs from your heart. Launches from your mouth. So you have to be the theological one. Oh, you're the faith. You're the, look, I've been in intervarsity longer than you. Look. I go here, I go there. We, we teach the Bible at my church. What do you guys do? Topical? You guys do topicals? So probably figure 12-step plan to financial freedom. I get it. And there's those churches out there too. It's not bad. I'm not, not knocking on you. I'm not judging. The Bible says not judged. But start knocking people down. You got to be a theological. Well, do you understand the old covenant? I mean, you don't understand the old covenant. You don't really know what's going on. Like, I mean, it's just, I'll explain it at some point. You know, we'll get to it like, deeper. You can have the show now, but once we get to the real stuff, I'll, right? You got to be the theological one in your circle. Start knocking people down, Right? That's, that's the great thing about being on our pastoral staff. We're all just like total like, <laughs> like dorks and like no one knows like anything. We're just making it up as we go. <laughs> like, I'm kidding. We, we prepare, but, <laughs> right? right? But you got to be a theological. You see that? If your identity is rooted in one of those things, 
When the world threatens your identity, whatever it is, business, sales, marketing, school, academics, parenting, husbandry, wifehood, all of that stuff. When the world comes in and shows you, and by the way, there will be someone better at it than you. I just, I just, want, to, I just want to level with you now. There will be someone better at online marketing than me. Okay? There's better husbands than me. There's better fathers than me. Okay? But if my identity is threatened, I then what, what comes out of my mouth is an attempt to tear it back down. Because you can only do two things. You can elevate yourself or tear down someone else if you want to get on the same level with them. And so we start to burn. We start to wound. But if your identity is primarily, first and foremost, in the person and work of Jesus and what God has done, if that's where your security is, that you were created in the image of God, he has every hair on your head numbered, even if you shaved off the sides yesterday. He knows them all. Even if you're losing your hair, he knows how many you had and how many you currently have. It says he holds every tear you've ever cried in a bottle. Can't love you anymore. Loved you so much that contrary to all the false gods which say, when you get to me, we'll talk. He says, I will come to you so we can talk. And he comes in the garden, and he came on the cross, and he comes again in Revelation. The world never gets to Jesus. Jesus always comes to the world, pursuing people, broken people, fractured people. And Jesus comes after us individually, like Justin talked about, a God that big, yet that intimate, who was crushed on the cross as your sin, not as a picture of your sin, as your sin, took that beating for you. So that now when he, with his righteousness, God looks at you, sees his righteousness, you are now perfect to God. You're still a sinner in an earthly realm, right? The Bible says, be perfect as my father is imperfect. How do you do that? You accept Christ. Because then it's his perfection that God sees when he looks at you, not ours. When your identity, your primary, primary identity your primary identity is that. The world can't shake it. Another business guy comes along, he's like, that's awesome. I got something to learn from him. Right? He's athletic. What do you do? How are you that fast? It's not roids, is it? Because I don't want to do this, but I want to be fa- How? What have you trained? How have you trained? We, can, we, don't, we no longer look at it as a threat. We look at it as, man, God has gifted people like crazy. That's cool. That's awesome. You are wicked smart at organic chemistry. I got a B, right? Man, give me some help. C, I got a D. You're no longer mad. You don't have to tear them down because you see God's gifting in their life. So that's where your primary identity comes from. That's at the core of everything. If that's your primary identity, and look, being a husband is a good thing. Being a father is a good thing. Being a businessman is a good thing. Being a pastor is a good thing. These are all good things, good layers to my identity, but they are not, by the grace of God, my primary identity. So if your primary identity is rooted in anything in this world, it will be shook and you will have to go on the defense against it. But if it's in the person and the work of Jesus, you need not tear anyone down because you're secure. People talk, I'm secure in myself. I would not be. You need to be, you need to love yourself before you can learn to love. You need to be secure in yourself before you can... You need to love Jesus before you can even love anyone. You need to be secure in what he has done before you can be secure in even speaking to a fractured and broken world. Does that make sense? 
Your primary identity cannot be in anything of this world. It must be in the gospel first and foremost. Therefore, the words that come out need not tear anyone down because you're secure. You can begin to build people back up in the giftings that God has given them and the work that he's done in your broken and fractured life. And so words are a heart problem and heart problems are an identity problem. And he says this, so he's given us these three illustrations. His words are powerful. Words are influential. And words can be destructive. In verse six, it says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. It's not mincing words. It says, when you seek to destroy, look, your identity has clearly been shaken. So you've got to go on the attack. And it's a demonic attack. And check this out. This is where he's actually being a little funny. Some of you read the Bible and you never laugh. You're doing it wrong. Okay? And so he says this. It says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of creature in the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly, evil, full of deadly poison. He's like, look, we have tamed everything. Everything. Right? And we're called to, we are called to have everything lower creation be in submission to us. We are. He sets that up in Genesis. He's like, look, we've tamed everything. We have pet snakes. Anyone have a pet snake? You all kind of freak me out. Okay? We've tamed snakes. I know people that just hang out with snakes at home. I, I, not, me, not for me. I got two rescued cats and I had a dog. That was about it. Right? We've tamed dogs. We've tamed beasts. We've got zoos. I mean, have you seen zoo workers? You're going out there with that rhino? right? Oh, this is Billy. He's fine. Look at that horn, right? You're just like, that's a crazy beat. We've tamed him. We've done it. You name it, we've tamed it, right? That, kind of, that was kind of cool. I should write that one out. We've named it. You're like, everything. We've, he's like, and you keep, but, but we can't even tame our tongue. All the beasts, these powerful beasts, look at what they have whales do at SeaWorld, regardless of how you feel about the documentary, right? Like, look at what we, we have these massive fish, these, and, 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 and sometimes they, they, they grind back and they show us how powerful they really are, don't they? But we've tamed them on this absurd level. He's like, you can't, you can't even tame your tongue. You can't even tame your tongue. And here's the thing. We can't. I just said it and I mean it. There's a catch. You in and of yourself can not tame your tongue. This sermon will not tame your tongue. Your best efforts will not tame your tongue. How depressing is that? Right? Who's depressed now? Well, this is worthless. Get the worship band up. Let's get out of here. Listen to me very carefully. I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm not going to give away the ending. You cannot tame your tongue. Your best efforts will not tame your tongue. We will continue to burn when we should build. It says, we've every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of sea has been tamed, but no man can tame his tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father. With it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude, which a better interpretation is in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. My, my studies at Cal Lutheran were primarily 
In fact, I was double majoring at first, and then I got to my senior year and just did a minor because I was like, I'm not going to do anything with the second, and let's be honest, senior year needs to be epic, right? So I need to do a lot more surfing, a lot less classes, and so the double major thing didn't work out, Um, but I was double majoring and then eventually did a major minor in communications and sociology, right? Communications, sociology, and one thing I can tell you from a broad look at both of those disciplines, every major movement of people at its core has had one or a few people with very precise, powerful rhetoric. All human movements at their core have had a few, with incred- if not one, with incredible rhetoric. Why? Because words are powerful. They can be used to influence and they can be used for destruction. They can be used for the reformation of the church, as with Luther, which he never even wanted it to be a reformation. He wanted restoration from within the Catholic church and he penned 99 statements on the door. Just words, just words, in contradistinction to just words that were being spoken from the church at the time. And it sparked, it sparked all, of the, all of the Protestant pillars that we sit on today in a Protestant non-denominational church. They can be used to influence very powerful words from guys like Luther. And yet words, the same vocalizations, the same vibrations, the same audible tones coming out of a mouth can spark Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. How were those people, how on earth did that happen? With powerful rhetoric. With powerful rhetoric. How on earth in this country and in other countries and still today, by the way, there is more slavery today than there ever was in the, human, in, the, in the history of the world. There is more slavery today. But how on earth in America did we get to a place where human beings were seen as subhuman beings, as 0.5 human beings? How on earth did that happen? Rhetoric, words, convincing It's Sanctity of Life Sunday today. Did you know that? Sanctity of Life. Pastor Rob addressed it this morning. I'll address it now. Some of you will be challenged on this. And I'm okay with that. How on earth did we get to a place where babies aren't human anymore? How on earth? Look, I'll I'll close my Bible. I just want to talk scientifically with you about it. If from conception... The binomial nomenclature of that creation is not homo sapien. What is it? Scientifically, you got to stay in the science with me. Binomial nomenclature, how we identify species. If it's not homo sapien, my follow-up question is, what is it? And scientifically, when it becomes homo sapien, what changed? And if you say it's not any other binomial nomenclature... It's not complete. It's not with the 46 chromosomes. It's not with its own DNA. It doesn't have a heart. It doesn't have brain waves. If it's no species, when it becomes a species, what changed? Just scientifically. You go through any science book, not any science book, but any biology, any early life book, they all conclude the same thing. Life begins at conception. How on earth did we get to the point where they are now subhuman? 
Words. That's just cells. Same genetic makeup as you. Oh, it's just, it's in a different location. It's in there, it's in, it's the woman's body. Scientifically, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I think it has its own set of genetics, own set of DNA, own set of chromosomes from conception. To say it's part of the woman's body, it's like saying it's his thumb. No, it's not. That thumb shares the scientific makeup of the wife, of the, of the, the, the mother. Maisie, we just watched, I just watched the miracle of birth. It's, in, it's crazy. It's like, poof, there it is. You're like, you were in her. Now you're looking at me weird, right? Like, how do we get to the point where they're now subhuman? Words. It's a choice. They're just cells. It's nothing until all of a sudden it's born and then it, its entire genetic makeup is now complete because what? What was added? Was it not growing? Was it not consuming? Was it not living? Was it not complete? You're still growing. Doesn't make you any less human. Some you're still getting taller. Doesn't make you less human than you were a couple years ago when you were shorter, smaller, less developed. Anyone want to look at my three-week-old baby and say, well, she has less value than me because I'm in a different development state? Just stick to the science on this stuff, people. And the Bible declares that there's personhood in the womb. John the Baptist leaped in the womb. There's personhood in the womb. You can disagree with God, but know that you're disagreeing with God, not me. If something, if the way I say something offends you, I repent. If something God says offends you, you repent. If the way I say something offends you, I'll repent. Come up to me and say, look, it was true, but I didn't like the way you said it. That's cool. Sorry about that. But if what God says offends you, that he said that, yeah, I needed you together in your mother's womb. John was declared to be a person before he was born. Jesus was a person before he was born. You repent. Words are powerful. They can influence entire movements of people. And God invites us to something better with his call on our life. You can look at this as, again as, as another restrictive, law-giving, legalistic approach to keeping you from something fun. But God has something better. Our words reveal our progress in our faith. One of the primary marks of maturity is self-discipline, and self-discipline in regards to our speech is incredibly rare. And so here's the part where I want to build this up. I know I'm going long and I really appreciate it that you guys stick around. It's midnight already, so you didn't know that, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not that bad. I could go to midnight, but we won't. All right, so we want to build up. I want to build up. We, do we get it? Words are powerful. They can be used for good and they can be used for bad. They can burn or they can build. So let's build on that. Because as we continue, let's read. No man can tame the tongue, it says. We bless our God and we curse men. So it says, out of the mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Verse 11 says, does a spring set forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Verse 13, it's gonna talk about wisdom before we get into this building. Where does this wisdom come from? It's not gonna come from me, by the way. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done 
in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, see, he does it again, gets to the heart of the issue, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. From where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's a huge statement. When we envy and are seeking ourselves, that's where all of evil is born. God's words, not mine. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ephesians 4.29. This is heavenly wisdom now. I'm done. God's going to speak simply through his word at this point. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Give people what they don't deserve, grace, with your words. When they spite you, give them what they don't deserve. Give them love back. People say, show them hell. I dare you to show them heaven. Give them hell, son. How about we give them heaven, church? Show them that so they have to deal with it now before they have to deal with it when Jesus returns. Colossians 3, it says, but now you yourselves are put off to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. I was in the Marine Corps. I know about swearing. People say, oh, you cuss like a sailor. Where do you think they learned it? The Marine Corps. I know about cussing. I know about cussing. I know that it is used to intimidate. I know that it is used so that people can feel inferior, dominant. If you cuss, God says, put it off. Put it off. Filthy language out of your mouth. Put it off. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned with salt. Don't we love salt? Don't we love things seasoned with salt? Right? Why? It brings out the flavor, doesn't it? Your speech should bring out the flavor of the Christian life. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And I told you that you can't do this. Your words may say that you're angry, that you're jealous, that you're arrogant, that you're prideful, that you're mean, that you're condescending, that you're spiteful, that you're backstabbing. Your words may say that. And I'm here to tell you that you, through your own efforts, will not be able to reverse course. Titus 3, 1 through 7 says this. Listen. Remind them to be subject to the rulers. And he's writing to this island of Crete, this party, this epic. It actually looks, the island still exists today. kind of looks like California. Nice mountains, beaches. It was known as a secular society. It was a party society. It was fun. It was affluent. It's basically Thousand Oaks. Okay? Except for the fun part. We're kind of boring. And so it says, remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. By the way, that includes the president. No, I read on a blog that we can talk bad about him. I've challenged the church before. Our, pa- our senior pastor is a sitting councilman. You don't say anything about President Obama that you would not say about Pastor Rob. You don't speak about him. It doesn't mean you can't disagree. Of course you can disagree. You don't speak about Obama in a manner in which you would not be speaking to our senior pastor right here on a Sunday morning. An elected official of the people. Speak evil of no one. Politicians, friends, family, people that have backstabbed you. 
It's tight, right? It's tight. How do we do this? This is impossible. And you already said it's not possible, so just hurry up, be over. It's almost midnight, right? Speak ill of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once foolish. So you guys have all been pretty bad at this. That's what the Bible says, not me. I don't even have to. Disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works, of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And so how do we do this? If we can't do this, how do we do this? The Bible says, through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 says that even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was going into people's hearts who accepted him, taking their heart of stone and taking it out and putting in a heart of flesh It was changing their desires. It was changing their language. It was changing their humility and their meekness. And it says the Holy Spirit was then causing God's people to walk in his statutes. So how do we do this? How do I stop talking? You can't. Your role is to yield to the Holy Spirit. We're gonna go into a time of worship and that's what I want from us tonight is to lay down what we brought to the table in terms of our words tonight. Knowing that you don't have to undo them and you don't have to fight moving forward. You simply need to yield and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and fight for you. It says, through the washing of the regeneration of the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, then having be justified by his grace that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So tonight in regards to our tongue, I pray that we receive this heavenly wisdom which comes down from above as James ends this chapter. We accept the renewing, the washing, the spiritual mouthwash of the Holy Spirit in regards to our tongue. Not so people will say, oh, he listened to a good sermon. Not so people will say, oh, she goes to a good church. Not so people say, oh, they must have a good pastor. But so people will say, wow, they serve a good God. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we serve you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Not because we loved you first, but because you first loved us. And I'm thankful that you are so big that you created all things. The Bible says you even created the concept of time, which we're bound by. You're that big, and yet you care about us this much that you would come to us in the garden, on the cross, and you're coming back for your people again. But there's work to be done. Our role is to be image bearers of you, creating the image and likeness of God. And so Jesus, I'm mindful of your words as you sealed our salvation. You didn't just do so by breathing your last breath. You didn't just do so by dying on the cross. You said, it is finished and we're secure. Our primary identity is in what you have done, not in what we can do. And so even in the, 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 the minute, seemingly tiny details of our lives, including the tongue that we hold in our mouth, we know that we need to give you control of it, Holy Spirit, that you will renew our hearts and regenerate us. Our tongue issue is a heart issue. And so Holy Spirit, go to work on our hearts. Jesus, we love you enough 
to accept what you have said. And I pray that we continue to love you even more, to trust your ways as we move forward. And so Jesus, be glorified in this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.